All right, let's listen to it one more time because once is not enough. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes, and there will no longer be death. There will no longer be mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Faithful and true. You know, we've been somewhat conditioned in our culture, in our society, to want brand new things. I like new things. Whether it be new cars, new clothing, new things. And I was thinking about this the last few days. Where did this word brand new come from anyway? Is it like brand names? And we have brand names on the collars of our shirts or on our jeans. Where's the brand come from? Well, it's pretty literal. Ancient Germanic languages, the brand meant burned or fired. So something brand new literally means fresh from the fire as in glowing metal. That comes out of the forge or glazed pottery coming out of the kiln. Because then in those days that would be brand new. It would be fired new. Fresh and never before used. Now, you can in our society, if you want to, you can buy a refurbished MacBook Pro. If you want to, you can do that. They have them out there. You can purchase, a, and I love how they call it, you can buy a pre-owned vehicle. Who are we kidding? It's used. It's a used car, but pre-owned vehicle with a little certificate that tells you it was pre-owned. That's great. You can get that if you want, and sometimes that's smart shopping. Or a piece of furniture from Whidbey Buy, Sell, Trade. You get all kinds of stuff on there. Deals are to be had at thrift stores. My daughter taught me this in Jahan. She went off to college in Spokane. And was talking about, even her high school, senior year of high school, she would go thrift store shopping with her friends. And I'm like, honey, we'll give you money. I, this, I didn't understand. We raised her to be a strict capitalist. <laughs> we attended mall every Saturday. I mean, she knew. <laughs> and so she's thrift store, thrift store. That, so we would go out to visit her out there in Spokane. First time, she says, I got to take you to my favorite thrift store. <laughs> I'm like, great. So we go to the thrift store. We're walking around. There's all kinds of stuff. And I'm looking around. And we're kind of spread out. And there, you know, my wife is finding all kinds of deals. And, and Hannah is. Well, I'm over in the, in the men's clothing section. And I'm looking at this and going, well, these are some pretty good prices. Some nice stuff. The sales girl came up to me and she said, yeah, this stuff is actually just came to us out of an estate sale. And I said, you mean these were clothes worn by a dead guy? I'm out. I want brand new. I want clean. I want never before worn. If I can afford it. And if we will admit it, most of us like new stuff. We like the things that are brand new, but it's, it's a deceptive desire in our culture, in our world. New is a lie. Computers go obsolete faster than you can type on them. New cars depreciate the moment you take it off the lot. It's lost massive value. Furniture immediately loses value. New clothing quickly. I mean, after the first wear, it becomes old hat. (laughs) Clothing, old hat. That was for Deb Seibel right there. I thought she'd appreciate that. But no wonder Jesus said in Matthew 6.19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Why? Because in heaven, new is always new. I mean, think about that. Can you comprehend the fact that in heaven, new never gets old? That nothing ages. And not only ages, nothing gets boring. New is always new. With Jesus, life never gets old. It is always an adventure. There's always more to learn, more to know. It's always abundant. It's always everlasting. It is always forever young. 
with a nod to Bob Dylan. But it's forever young in the truest sense of the phrase. And isn't that really what the desire is that we have for new things, for newness in the world? We we want something that's going to last, a longevity that's fresh, that doesn't age or, or fall apart or grow old. Something new. Something new. Remember the parables that we talked about several weeks ago now when we were in Revelation 2 and 3. We looked at the seven churches to whom and through whom these letters were written, or this letter was originally written. And those seven churches we compared to, we contrasted with the parables that Jesus taught in Matthew 13, the kingdom parables. Seven kingdom parables, seven churches. And we made contrast between them and looked at how they tend to align parable to, to church. Very interesting. Well, at the end of that, Jesus told an eighth. See if you remember this, Matthew 13, verse 52. Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. We've seen a lot of old things. But this is about something new. And truly, we come to Revelation 21 here at the end of the book. And you think at the end of the book, by now it's starting to get old. This is when it gets new. This is where the old is done with and the new is coming and the new is promised. Here at the epic finale of the revelation of Jesus Christ comes the promise of all things new. And I looked that up in the Greek. All things means... All things. You're picking up on this. It's all things new. There's nothing that is not new when we come to the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem that God promises to bring. And He promised it 750 years before Christ. Isaiah chapter 65 verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. In the Hebrew, new there is the plural word, chadashim. Or in the singular, it's from chadash. And that word, I'm telling you, because it means brand new. Fresh. It's a word that is intrinsically always new. Not something just recently new. And we see this here in Revelation 21, the parallel word in the Greek, because the word new, there are two synonyms. One is neos. You've probably heard neos or neo, where we get the word neo, something that's new. But neos in the Greek is not used here. Neos is new in terms of time. So something that's recently new, something that just occurred or or just happened or was just made. So that would be neos. This word here is kainos. And kainos means new in terms of value. Kainos is something that is intrinsically new. We would call it fresh, brand new, previously unknown. But again, intrinsically, it remains new. It's just fresh. That's characteristic of the kind of newness that we're talking about when he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth and I saw the holy city, verse 2, new Jerusalem. This is all not just new in terms of it's just happened, but new because it will forever be new. Brand new always. Now, there are a lot of people, myself would be included, who await the rapture of the church. But we've already studied, we've looked at in this study through Revelation, we've seen it in multiple other places in Scripture, the idea of the church being called home by Jesus, going up when He calls. We also look forward to, as we talked about the last couple weeks, the Millennial Kingdom. You know, the the discussion in the Scriptures, Revelation 20, about the thousand-year reign of Christ. But understand that when Revelation 21 opens up, both the rapture and the Millennial Kingdom are bygone blessings. They are past tense. I can't wait, but they're going to be over. They will come, they will go, and we'll go on to something else. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If the kingdom becomes past tense, well, why does Jesus say, seek first His kingdom? Huh? How about that, Pastor? Because the kingdom never ends. See, the kingdom begins with a thousand year reign. We've talked about why that, because it, it, it follows through. It fulfills every promise that God made to His people Israel. 
God doesn't make a promise without following through, without fulfillment. And so the kingdom does that. That thousand year reign fulfills all the promises of the Hebrew scriptures. We've seen them all. And they're all fulfilled in that. But it doesn't stop there. The kingdom of God flows on into eternity. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. It never ends. Or listen to this, Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Verse 27 of Daniel 7. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. And so Revelation 21 and 22 reveals this breathtaking, panoramic, magnificent glimpse on into the eternal kingdom. And it's to me one of the most exciting things about going through the book of Revelation is that you get through chapter 19 and the, and the second coming of Jesus. And it's like, oh, it's over. Good. And then suddenly, whoa, there's a thousand year reign of Jesus in chapter 20. Whoa, wait a minute. It's not over yet. We're not done. And I've shared with you that for a kid growing up with the view that earth just ends, Jesus comes and heaven begins... And that's all we were ever taught. Revelation 21 and 22 is absolutely brand new. It's mind-boggling. It's it's the Lord here at the end saying, look, I want you to know there's more. Isn't that always the way it is with God? I want you to know there's more. Sometimes we get content in our place, in our space, in our study, in our knowledge, in our walk with Jesus. I'm good, I'm good. And God goes, well, there's more. I still have a 21 and a 22 if you're interested. (laughs) See, it never ends. It never gets old. It is always brand new with Jesus. Verse 1 of Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Note this, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. What do we mean when we say something's passed away? We mean it's gone. It's history. Clean out your locker, old heaven, old earth, you're gone. There's no place for you. And I want you to understand this is so important because there's some, there's some theology out there, there's some commentaries out there that will teach that heaven and earth get reformed and remade and then kind of head into it. And the new heaven, new earth, that's just a remaking. Hey, we've been over the word now. The word kainos means brand new, not refurbished or renovated or upgraded. And furthermore, John says, heaven and earth will have passed away. At this point, verse 1, chapter 21, old heaven, old earth, where we reside right now, it's toast. And I mean literally toast. Read Second Peter chapter 3. The earth that was destroyed once by the flood, by water, will be destroyed by fire. Completely, unequivocally, it's gone, man. When? When does that happen? Back up in verse 11 of chapter 20. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Fled away also means cease to exist. The old earth, this planet, the old heavens above, gone. But the end of the verse, verse 1 of chapter 21, is enigmatic, strange. What does this mean? And there is no longer any sea. Hey man, we live in the islands. You're telling us suddenly there's no sea? And if you're a surfer, bummers, right? I mean, what do you mean there's no sea? This is the eternal state. So while there's no longer a sea as we might know it, as we might think of it, this is coming into eternity and I, I can guarantee it. There's going to be something unimaginable. Something far better, far more beautiful. Those of you who have view homes right now, the Puget Sound, it's going to be better. Those of us who do not have view homes, we're okay with this. (laughs) No sea. 
There will no longer be any sea. Well, I I want you to think about this for a moment because I think there's more here than meets the eye. A couple of questions to consider regarding the fact that there's not going to be a sea in the new heaven, new earth, in this amazing thing that God is doing. No sea. The first question to answer. Where was John at the time of this writing? Patmos. He's on the island of Patmos. He's in exile on the island of Patmos, a good 50, 60 miles from any mainland, surrounded by sea, isolated, alone. And if I were John sitting there staring at that sea every day, knowing there's no way off this rock, and God says, oh, by the way, (laughs) there's no sea to worry about. There is no longer any sea. One day, John, it'll all be over. No more sea. You ever felt stuck like John? Like you're on your own Patmos. You're staring out at what seems to be an endless life condition. It will never be better than this. We'll never get beyond this. We're stuck where we are. I hate where I am. Isolated. Alone. Can't move beyond it. And God says, don't worry. This this sea that surrounds you, this is not eternal. This is not forever. And if you this morning feel isolated like John was, you feel stuck in a place. Listen, Psalm 68, verse 6, God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So I'll tell you what, if you want to stay stuck, stay in rebellion. If you want to be in a condition that never gets better, just keep rebelling. But if you want to be set free, come to Jesus. Give your life to Him. And by the way, you can be parched in the middle of the sea. I remember being out on the beach as a kid growing up in Southern California and being just dying of thirst. And you're out in the waves. Makes no sense. We had to bring water bottles just so that we could refresh ourselves. And by the way, he doesn't say there will be no more water. He says there will be no more sea. The truth is there is a glorious amount of water flowing in this new situation. In fact, if you look at chapter 22, verse 1, speaking of New Jerusalem, it says, He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Fresh water is going to flow in the new Jerusalem, on the new heaven, or in the new earth, under the new heaven. Fresh water. Jesus says, you want it now? How would you like some right now? John seven thirty eight. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. And the last time I checked the word flow, it means a continual flowing. It's a nonstop promise. See, this is marvelous about Jesus because, again, you come to Him right now and we're still on the old earth. We're still under the old heavens. The old order of things still exists. And we're in this place and yet you come to Jesus now and you can start having living water flow today. You can know the freshness of Jesus today regardless of what's happening all around. Just come to Me, He says. Believe in Me. But there's something else more to this no more sea. No more sea. Israelites were never seafaring folk. They didn't like the sea. They didn't like the water. They were land lovers. Every last one of them. You don't really hear much about the Israeli Navy. They have one, but they don't like it. You know, they like to look out at the Mediterranean, but not to be in the Mediterranean. Because, well, the ancient Israelites were farmers. And they were herders and they were vineyard keepers. They loved the land with all its promise. They just loved the land. To the Jew, the sea was never home. This would not bother John in the least to recognize there's no longer any sea. Well, good, I never had a whole lot of use for it in the first place. And in fact, in ancient rabbinical thought, the sea was always a picture of or was considered a place of separation and evil. And there's no longer any sea. The sea's gone. There's no more separation. There is no more evil. So think about this. The second question is, not only where was John? He was on Patmos. He was surrounded by sea. But what had John seen up to this point in the Revelation? Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, he had seen the sea give up its dead. 
Revelation chapter 20, verse 8. He saw a rebellion like the sands of the sea. Revelation 18, verses 17 through 19. He saw those who make their living by the sea lamenting the burning of Babylon. Revelation 16, the sea became blood like that of a dead man. And Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, John saw the beast coming up out of the sea. Not a pretty picture. Not a beautiful paradise picture. Biblically, the sea tends to represent the human world. We would call it the sea of humanity. But with the advent of the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, that old mortal order of things is over. There will be no more sea as we have known it. And my question to you is, are you going to be glad to see it go? The sea of humanity, the the world order as it stands, the human way of doing things. Are you going to be glad to see this old world go? Are you? Or are you holding on a little too tight? We all can. We all can feel that sense of, come Lord Jesus, but not yet. (laughs) I want to be rescued, but I got some great plans this week. So if you could just put it off a week, that'd be fantastic. Are you holding on too tight? Please hear me on this. Psalm 146, verse 3. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. No human being is going to save you from the mess that you're in. No human being is going to be the salvation that you, that I, truly need. His spirit, he says, speaking of mortal man, his spirit departs. He returns to the earth. And that very day, his thoughts perish. Don't trust that. Don't trust the mortal order, the human way of doing things. Romans chapter 8 verse 5 says, Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. And listen to the difference because the world sets its mind on the flesh. All of the things that plague society do so because they are fleshly focused. Everything even from from success to power to position. All of the gender identity mess that our culture is in right now, it's because the focus is on the flesh. I can say that without any judgment whatsoever. Do you understand that a person in a gender identity crisis is in crisis because the mind is set on the flesh? But if the mind is set on the spirit, guess what the Bible says? The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit, Romans 8, 6, is life and peace. Life and peace. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... And the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, he says, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. You know what jumped out at me this week in reading that passage? The boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And it's Pride Month, isn't it? I wasn't even going to mention that. In Jerusalem, I'm going to tell you more about this in just a second, but in Jerusalem on Thursday is a gay pride march. In Jerusalem. The boastful pride of life. What is the pride in? It's it's a flesh-focused pride. What I'm saying is this, the repeated failure of humanity to ever bring about anything new is like waves of the sea. They come rolling in, They withdraw. They come rolling in. They withdraw. Again and again across history, humanity has been rolling in and withdrawing and to no ultimate success. But it will end. There is no sea. The day is coming when all that will be over. Isaiah 42 verse 9, God says, Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim to you, sing to the Lord a new song. 
His praise to the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands, Wibby, Fidalgo, and those who dwell on them, sing to the Lord a new song. Why? Because He declares new things are coming. A new heaven, a new earth. He's going to expand on that over chapters 21 and 22. Fresh, unworn, the eternal order of God is coming. And by the way, with it, with it, the most amazing capital city. Chapter 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, some might read that and go, okay, now I'm confused because I thought the bride was the church. Pastor Rick, you've been talking about this. You've been saying the bride is the church, right? But now it looks like New Jerusalem is the bride. Well, which is it? Did we, did we misinterpret or misunderstand Scripture? Well, go back to chapter 19. Look at verse 7. Let's just clarify who the bride is. Revelation 19.7 Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Note that. His bride mentioned here before New Jerusalem comes down. His bride has made herself ready. Verse 8 It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the who? The saints. The holy ones. Fine linen, bright and clean. It's the wedding garb of the saints. Before Jesus on that day, Jesus the groom, the saints are the bride. And as we talked about the fine linen, white and clean, that's the righteous acts of the saints. But even those righteous acts were given to us. You know, the groom provides the bride with the wedding garb, the gown to be worn. And so the righteousness that I do, any good thing that comes out of me, it's because Jesus gave it to me to do it. He provided it for me. But make no mistake about it, the bride is the church. Followers of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Himself is the beloved groom, our groom. New Jerusalem, note this, New Jerusalem, He says, comes down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride. As a bride. Like a bride. Analogous to a bride. For two reasons. Number one, it's a picturesque reason. As a bride comes down the aisle in the wedding ceremony, so now New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. John is describing it like that moment. And I still remember to this day the moment I saw Cheryl for the first time in her wedding dress. Coming down the aisle. Someone was walking with you, hon. I don't remember who that was, but, but there she was. And she came down the aisle and for me, time stopped. In that moment, everything was perfect. It's only gotten better, by the way. But it was a great moment. And that's what John, he's he's painting a picture here. Here comes New Jerusalem, like a bride. And the expectation of the groom is here it is. Here you go. Oh, there's more to it. We'll get there. But Jews, Jews have two different names for Jerusalem. Two different ways of, of thinking about Jerusalem. One is Yerushalayim Shelmata, and that means Jerusalem below. Yerushalayim Shelmata, that's Jerusalem today. That's the city of Jerusalem as it exists today in the nation of Israel. Jerusalem below. But they also talk about Yerushalayim Shelmeala, which is Jerusalem above. Jerusalem above is coming down the aisle. It's coming as a bride, like a bride. Paul references Jerusalem above. He says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 26, that Jerusalem above is free. Free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And Paul's talking about New Jerusalem. Like a mother of many children. And he says, and you, brethren, are like Isaac, are like children of promise. Something that should not happen. We shouldn't know New Jerusalem. We shouldn't be in New Jerusalem. It shouldn't happen. And yet, like Isaac, we become children of promise and God does the miraculous. But there's more than just a picture of a bride coming down the aisle here. As New Jerusalem comes down from heaven... 
It's compared to a bride because I believe that New Jerusalem will be the bride's home into eternity. This is our address. You can go ahead and get your business cards written up right now. Rick Crawford, New Jerusalem. That's my address. That'll be my zip code. That's where the church will reside in the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. This will be home to us. How do you know that? Well, I'll prove it to you. Wednesday night. So you have to come back Wednesday if you want to find out how we know this. But listen, God loves Jerusalem. I picked up a book years ago. I think I may have mentioned this a couple weeks back, but a book called Jerusalem and Prophecy. Actually, my, my friend Mike Freeman found it in an, in an airport, didn't you, Mike? Which I thought was the weirdest thing because it's a great book. Found it in an airport bookstore. Mike was flying and, and, and picked it up and handed it here. Rick, you might want to read this. He really instigated a lot of things in me in those early days. One was a love for Jerusalem. And I still have that book on my bookshelf, Jerusalem in Prophecy. And it was the first time in my life where I had considered that Jerusalem mattered to God. Because honestly, from a human perspective, it doesn't make a lot of sense. That's like saying Oak Harbor is God's chosen city. What? You've got to be... Anacortes, that's the place where He wants His name to dwell. It's the same idea. Jerusalem. I choose Jerusalem. Why would an eternal God, creator of the entire universe, not only choose a planet and a people, but a location on that planet, Jerusalem? But He does. And He did. God loves Jerusalem. Let me prove it to you. Psalm 87, verse 1. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Psalm 132, verse 13. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I I have desired it. Jerusalem. He says in Isaiah 49, verse 15, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Listen, I've learned a thing or two about this. A woman cannot forget her nursing child because her nursing child won't let her. Right, Ethan? Where's Ethan? He's not even in here, is he? Yeah. Matt, this morning, he's just going off. My daughter Hannah's at her house and Josiah, her husband, and the kids, Silas and Ethan. And Ethan was going off. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Not likely. But in this case, even these might forget, God says. But I will not forget you. And I love that verse. And we hear that and go, oh, it's so good to know that God won't forget me. He's not talking about you. (laughs) Now, thankfully, there are plenty of other verses where He doesn't forget you, won't forget me, will never forget us. But He's talking about Jerusalem. He says, Isaiah 49, 16, Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. What walls? Jerusalem. Because God loves Jerusalem. It's one of the reasons we go there. He loves it. He wants us to see, hey, I love this. Well, I've had people tell me about you know going to Israel. Well, I don't want to go to Israel. Why would I want to go to Israel? Go see Israel. God loves it. It's got to be something. Got to be something going on. New Jerusalem is coming. New Jerusalem. And God loves Jerusalem. But note this. New Jerusalem is also called the Holy City. (laughs) I saw the Holy City. New Jerusalem. So not only is it new, but it is holy. I read that and I thought, that's an oxymoron. A holy city. There's such a thing on the planet today. Is there a holy city? Cities tend to represent anything but holiness, which is why we all moved up here. (laughs) I remember the first time I saw Seattle. 1989. Cheryl and I came driving up I-5. We had gotten a place down in Tacoma. We were serving in a church down there in youth ministry. Drove up the freeway to see Seattle. And as we drove up, came up over the rise and there it was laid out before us and all the water and the trees and I was from LA man cities was for me LA was a city and I saw Seattle and went wow it's beautiful what a beautiful city I remember at the time thinking 
They called it the Emerald City, and to me that made sense with all the green all around it. Como News just did a special, maybe some of you saw this, called Seattle is Dying. And the heading for the special reads, Homelessness, Heroin Addictions, Filth, Theft, Crime, and Degradation are Rotting the Emerald City from the Inside Out. And you know, when I drive down to Seattle today, I don't see it the way I did back in 89. I see a city that is trashed. There's pollution everywhere. There's junk everywhere. And there is, and please hear my heart, there is also the refuse of humanity all over the place. The homelessness is huge. And if you've been down recently, you know that. There are homeless cities all over the place, under bridges and everywhere, along the roads, tents and people lying out. And when I say the refuse of humanity, I do not mean that judgmentally. I mean those who have been cast out. Those who have nothing. Some who have chosen to be there. Others who are so strung out on drugs, they have no other alternative. They're just lying around stoned. And you see all of this, and this is a city. But you know what? That's what happens in cities. See, humanity gathers together in concentrated communities and sin happens. It's not quite as obvious when we get a little more spread out, although it's still there. Maybe we just hide it better. But a holy city? Ain't no such thing. But what about Jerusalem? Rick, you were talking about Jerusalem. Yeah. This is why I look forward to new Jerusalem Because old Jerusalem is getting old. According to the Jerusalem Post this week, Chief Rabbi Aryeh Stern demanded that the city's mayor, Moshe Leon, not allow gay pride flags to be flown in the upcoming pride parade in Jerusalem, which is this Thursday. Thursday, June 6th. This is amazing to me because when I look at Israel, I've almost accepted this. They say, Jews say that in Tel Aviv they go to play, in Jerusalem they go to pray. So you accept that, well, there's there's some secular, uh, there's a line that's drawn there. Tel Aviv is very secular. Very secular. And if you go there and you, you stay in one of the high rises or you go out on the beach in the Mediterranean, you see a lot of very secular behavior and attitudes. It looks like an American city. And there's a lot of sin in Tel Aviv, partying, Drunkenness, sexual depravity is all going on there. And you kind of say, okay, but that's Tel Aviv. It's not Jerusalem. But there's a gay pride parade going on this Thursday in Jerusalem. And it's not the first one. Why there? Why? 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 Just, you, you got Tel Aviv. Party there. But in Jerusalem, let me tell you something. There's a spiritual reality here. And that is that sin always goes for the heart. That sin will always go and try to infiltrate the holiest place. It will do that in your life, in my life. Sin is never content being on the outlying areas. Sin is never content being separated from the heart of either the the nation, Israel, or the person. Sin always wants to go from outlying right to the heart, right up in God's face. Because sin is an affront to God. And you'll note this with everything. It always does that. It always starts at a distance and makes its way in to try and land in the capital itself. And so, Chief Rabbi Aryeh Stern wrote this letter. He said to the city mayor of Jerusalem, I know, I understand from the point of view of the law, the mayor has no ability to prevent the parade. Therefore, I ask you at least give a ruling for the flags not to be waved as they make the city, his words, ugly. He says, I trust you to act wisely to remove this disgrace from us, especially now in these holy days between Yom Yerushalayim, which is today, Jerusalem today is today, the reunification of Jerusalem, 1967, June the 2nd, and they celebrate that today, and then this week, on the 8th of June is Shavuot, what we call Pentecost. And in this time, Arya Stern is saying, this is a holy time for us Jews. Please, please don't allow the waving of the pride flag. Remember what we read from John, 1 John chapter 2, the boastful pride of life. Pride is a flesh-oriented thing. And he says, don't, just don't let them fly the flags. And I read that and I was thinking, you know what? I'm having a hard time today calling Jerusalem the holy city. People still do, but it's not. What flag are you flying over the holy city of your heart? 
What banner are you comfortable with? Let me put it that way. What are you okay with marching through and presenting to the world around you? What flag do you fly over your city or, or, or over our community or over your home, your family? Or over your life personally? What are you, what are you proud to stand up and present? See, my hope and my prayer over the Bridge Fellowship, over the churches of Oak Harbor, over my family and my personal life is that the only banner we will fly is the banner of Jesus Christ and the name of the Savior. New Jerusalem must come down for it is to be a holy city set apart unto God for His residence. The holy city, Jerusalem. And if you note verse 27 of chapter 21, nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jerusalem, the holy city, new Jerusalem like a bride. So again, what is it with God in Jerusalem? Why does He love it so much? Now, I have studied this, as I mentioned, for a long time. I've looked into Jerusalem and God's love for Jerusalem for many years now. And I want to give you the best answer that I have for why God loves Jerusalem so much. Jot this down. I don't know. (laughs) It still makes no sense to me. It's just a spot on the map. And yet God loves Jerusalem. And I can tell you this much. There's a holy continuity here. That He said His name there, and as Jerusalem shall mata, Jerusalem below passes away, along with heaven and earth passing away. So Jerusalem shall meala comes down from heaven New Jerusalem, fresh and clean and holy, brand new. And it will be God's dwelling among His children for all eternity. Check out verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. Tabernacle and dwell, same word. It's the noun form and the verb form of the same word. Skene for tabernacle, skenuo for dwell, and both mean a habitation. God is going to inhabit New Jerusalem. God is going to dwell there Himself among His people. Which is always what he's wanted to do. Think back to the Israelites wandering wandering in the wilderness and God said, Moses, I want you to build a tabernacle to specification. I want it this way because that's where I'm going to meet with you. And if you look at these things, the tabernacle was set down right in the middle of the people. God in the midst of the mess of Israel. And I get that. I was thinking about this last night. I am sitting in the mess of my family and it's marvelous. It's just crazy. We had dinner around the table last night and Honor Maria and Naomi and David were there and, and Hannah and Josiah and Silas and Ethan and Cheryl and I were all sitting there and noises and it's just crazy. Just crazy. Laughing, having a great time, making noise, spilling stuff and, and I'm thinking, this is my life. This is my life right here. I'm in the midst of, of all this wonder and madness and, and people have said to me, how are you, how are you doing that? I love it. I love it. I'm crazy, but I love it. It's nutty and it's insane and it's wonderful and it's community and family and relationship and that's the way it's supposed to be. And God is is in the midst of that and, and I get that. I get God in the midst of His people. That's where He wants to dwell. In the midst of the mess. That's why I love coming together. I was driving in this morning, coming up the drive, and a bunch of people were coming up, and I was running a little late. I got here later than I usually do, and I saw just, you know, a bunch of people getting out of their cars, going to church. And I said, thank you, Jesus, that people still go to church. What, what a joy it is that we gather in this community, but the real joy is not just us gathering, it's that God's here. I said, Jesus, is, He wants to be here. Why does He want Jerusalem? I don't know. Why does He want to be at the bridge? I don't know. But He does. He loves to dwell in the midst of His people. And perhaps that's why we're told in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Because God, it wasn't enough just to have the tabernacle. He had to come and be here in the midst of messy humanity. (laughs) Do you get the idea that God kind of likes relationships. That He has a thing for community and closeness 
and, and family and his children. Listen, the holy city, New Jerusalem, is holy and new precisely because of the presence of God. The presence of God. He's there. And it's something He promised a long time ago. Ezekiel 37, 27, My dwelling place also will be with them. And I will be their God, and they will be My people. It's the consummate reinstatement of what was lost in the Garden of Eden. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, I don't think the glory of Eden lay in its grassy walks or in the boughs bending with luscious fruit, but that the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Here was Adam's highest privilege, companionship with the Most High God. Companionship. See, I I describe Jerusalem, this, this city, and the God of the universe loves this city, and it makes no sense, but the thing that makes even less sense to me is how the Creator God of the entire universe just loves being right here with His people in the midst of the messy and the human He wants to be with you and with me God is present in New Jerusalem Father, Son Almighty, the Lamb and we'll see this many times as this New Jerusalem rollout continues but until then until He's there and among us and in the midst Jesus made a personal promise to His beloved bride. Do you remember John 14, 23? If anyone loves Me, He will keep My word, and My Father will love Him. And we will come to Him, and we will make our abode with Him. He is here now. He says to you and to me, look, I'm going to be dwelling in the midst of New Jerusalem then, but how'd you like Me to dwell in the midst of you today? Right now. My Spirit present with you. Wherever you are, wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever your circumstance or situation, whether you're on a rock like Patmos surrounded by a sea, or you're in the midst of a family surrounded by the laughter, or if you're in the hardest place of your life, I will dwell in you. Your heart will be my tabernacle. That's His offer to you this morning. You realize you don't have to walk out of here alone if you feel alone today. You can walk out of here with the presence of God Himself who desires so much to tabernacle with His people. And by the way, recognizing His presence in my life now is the key to living a holy city life. My life, a holy city? Hey, if Jerusalem can become a holy city, you can be a holy city in and of yourself before the Lord. And the key is recognize His presence. Don't forget He's with you. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, God is there. And when I see that, when I think about that, when I understand the immediacy of Jesus and His Spirit in me, right now, makes me holy. Sets me apart. It makes me want to live in righteousness. But watch this. It's not only the presence of God that makes New Jerusalem such a holy city. Verse 4, And... He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now let me be very clear with you. This does not mean there will be tears that need to be dabbed in eternity. It means that at this point, He wipes away every tear and they never return. There is never again mourning. There is never again sorrow or fear or anxiety or dread or pain or hurt or any of these things. These have passed away because New Jerusalem is not only characterized by the presence of God, it's characterized by the absence of grief. No more grief. It is simply gone. Tears and death and mourning and crying and pain finished. Things that sting the eye and ache the heart, done. And you might say, that's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine an existence with no pain. No pain. You know, my Rice Krispies used to go snack, crackle, pop. Now I'm hearing that as I get out of bed. (laughs) No pain. And some of you here this morning are dealing with far more pain than my 54-year-old body. Pain of cancer. Pain of arthritis. 
There's all kinds of physical pains people are dealing with that we deal with. And this word tells me in New Jerusalem, no pain. Can you even imagine waking up pain-free and you're not numb because of the drugs that you took to be pain-free? Just pain. Wow, I feel great. No more pain. It's gone. Death. Gone. No longer any death. You know, the older you get, the more you see it. I remember when I was in elementary school and a friend had a parent die. And and to us, all the kids in the class were like, that kid's marked by death. Seriously, I, kind of, I don't know if you were that way, but man, I remember feeling that way. Like, kid would walk into class, we'd all go, oh. He knows death. He's experienced death in his family. It was just such a huge, overwhelming thing to a child. And then, I lost a grandmother who I was very close to. And then as I was graduating high school, two weeks out of high school, a close friend, same name as mine, a friend named Rick, fell in a climbing accident, died instantly. A year later, a dear friend who was Cheryl's of my age, named Larry, died of stomach cancer. 20 years old. And death, I've dealt with so many memorials, so many funerals now over the years, I can't even count them. And the older I get, the more I see it. Friends and family and those around you just come become more aware of death. No more death. No more death. This has passed away. Mourning, crying, into this sea of human tears, God said, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. And that's good to know. Because honestly, when I think about going on into a eternity with Jesus if I can remember some of the things from this life I probably would shed a tear that's such an interesting verse and I've heard actually already this morning several different theologies on what it really means what it, how it works the former things will not be remembered or come to mind I don't know how that's going to work I don't know if God's going to offer us a holy memory dump you know it's just gone we just don't remember it anymore he does something you know waves his hand and we're like okay I just this is all I know (laughs) I kind of don't think so I kind of think maybe maybe that all of this pain and loss and sorrow when I'm in the presence of Jesus just fades from view because I'm so enamored of him because it's so right Perhaps because I comprehend God's righteousness and that everything is exactly as it is supposed to be. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. But I'll tell you what. He's going to wipe every tear from every eye and don't miss how intimate that is. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. He will do that every tear. Who would you allow to touch your face? Who do you let get that close that they can wipe your tears? Susie Frost, those of you who know Susie, love Susie and Bill. A couple of weeks ago, Sunday morning, Susie comes up to me. She goes, Pastor Rick, you have something on your face. And I'm like, oh. And she, she goes like this, so I wipe over here. And she goes, no, it's over here. And I wiped over here again. No, over here. And I wiped over here. And then finally she goes, let me get it for you. She reaches out and it was attached. I don't even know what it was. A little <laughs> thing sticking off my face. I'm like, whoa, hey, there we go. Susie's like, it's okay, I get it. You know, over here is Marie Anderson. She's laughing her head off. Cannot believe that Susie is touching my face. I think Susie just likes me. <laughs> she blamed it on being Korean. I'm like, no, no, you got a thing for the face, right? I don't know what it is. <laughs> She was so apologetic. I'll tell you what, I shared this during first service. She was sitting down here in the second row. Her head was in her lap. She was so embarrassed. She'll never be back. She's done with the bridge. She's going to go to the Methodist church down in Oak Harbor. I think that's where she's headed. So, amazing. Just reaches out, you know. Just I guess you feel close enough, right? Hey, tough guys. Who do you let touch your face? Who do you let wipe your tears? I don't cry. Yeah, sure you don't. Right, you don't. I don't. 
I hate that. I'm terrible. Hallmark commercials. I'm a, I'm a mess. It's ridiculous. You know, Cheryl's sitting there looking over at me. Are you crying again? No. <laughs> Who touches your face? God expresses His desire for face-to-face intimacy with you. To wipe your tears. Well, isn't that allegorical? I don't think so. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's how close He desires to be. David said in Psalm 39, 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. For I'm a stranger with you. A sojourner like all my fathers. In other words, David's saying, I don't belong here. I belong with you, Lord. You ever feel that way? I don't belong here. I hate here. Now understand, I love my life and I love my family and I love living in the Northwest and I love all the blessings God has poured out on me, but I hate living on this earth. When I think about where I belong, and sometimes my heart cries out, I understand David saying, don't be silent at my tears, Lord. Well, guess what? He's not. Psalm 56, verse 8, You have taken into account my wanderings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? How close does God have to be to have your tears in His bottle? How immediately intimate. Jesus will come as close to you as you will let Him. He will draw as near as you will allow. And on that day, Isaiah 25 verse 8, He will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. Verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. By the way, this is Jesus. I'll show how on Wednesday night. But He says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. And I get this picture of John there on Patmos going, oh yeah, right, I'm supposed to be writing this, right? Supposed to pen this. Did he drop his quill? He's so enamored, so amazed. He's seeing new Jerusalem coming down, new heaven and earth, and John is being given vision of this. Wow, and he's overwhelmed and he's not writing. And so Jesus says, write this down. The old apostle, overwhelmed. And some read this and they still find it unbelievable. But you know what? All the prophecies and predictions and portents of this book rest on a person. This is still the revelation of Jesus Christ. And all these things that we read and we hear, we can believe. Why? Because we trust Him. Because He said it. I'm already doing some pre-study for Genesis, which we're going to start at the end of June. We go back. We're going around the horn, right back to the beginning. And and I'm doing some pre-study. I'm reading ahead and thinking about these things. And one of the reasons why I believe that Moses is the author of Genesis, and it's very hotly debated among scholars and in commentaries, who really wrote Genesis? And there are people who say, ah, it couldn't be Moses. You know, I know that it was Moses. I can guarantee you Moses wrote Genesis. How do you know that, Rick? Because Jesus said so. See, at the end of Luke 24, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he began to explain himself to them. More than once, Jesus refers to Genesis as of Moses. And that's good enough for me because I trust Jesus. Because He is trustworthy. Right. These words are faithful and true. Behold, he says, I'm making all things new. All things new. Hey, are you world weary? Are you getting tired? Is earth getting old? Those of you who are older than me, I'm sure will laugh at this, but I think 54 years is a long time to live in this world. And I'll tell you why. It's a world where all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that makes it ugly. And that makes it old. And that makes so many of us weary. Driving to church this morning, I was looking out at things and I was talking to the Lord and I just said, you know, I'm so thankful to live here. It's it's late spring in northwest Washington. The sun's going to come out about 4 o'clock this afternoon like it always does. Can't wait for that. And, And as beautiful as it is here, there is an oldness in the earth. I'm not talking about the ground and the rings and the trees. I'm talking about it's just getting old, isn't it? 
How many more presidencies do we have to put up with? How many more congresses do we have to roll our eyes at? How much more in terms of sin and abominations and evil and wickedness is just constant? It's so getting old. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4 says, Indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Hey, listen, get this. New heaven. Brand new. New earth. Fresh and new. New Jerusalem. Well, how about this? How about a new you? How about a new you? I remember being on the teenage side of things and looking forward to becoming a man, being really a man, you know. And then I, I got to that point and I remember how much I missed being a teenager and, you know, and the energy I had. And then the older you get and you're looking back and going, man, I got issues. I wish this would go away. I wish that would stop. I would love to be new. How would you like to be new through and through? Not just your physical body. How about your spirit man, your spirit woman? Who you really are. How would you like to be made fresh and new such that whatever was past, whatever was gone, whatever is old and rotting in you, gone. Brand new today. See, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And God wants that for you. He has new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem coming. And in preparation for that, He wants to make a new you to dwell there. To make everything new. Right. For these words are faithful and true. And where Jesus is concerned, I'm telling you, faithfulness and trustworthiness are not an issue. He says it like it is. And Jesus this morning is offering you new life. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never been born again. And life's getting old. Perhaps you're in that place where you just, I don't know how much longer I can put up with things the way they are. Jesus is calling. And He's saying, be made new. Start today. Yeah, but Rick, you said that snap, crackle, pop thing. You're clearly not new. Oh man, I'll tell you what. My spirit is getting newer every day. The person that I am? Oh, this old body, yeah, I groan, but, but I am being renewed on a daily basis for something coming that is going to be marvelous when I'm caught up, when I'm glorified, and finally with Jesus. I want to pray this for you this morning. And I'll tell you what, here's what we're going to do. If your life is fresh and young, and everything's easy and peaceful and good, and there's nothing you would change, and you've got all the answers, and everything's working out really well for you, I want you just to stay seated. <laughs> But, if you long for the things we've talked about this morning, new earth, new heaven, new Jerusalem, and a brand new you, stand up. Isaiah 51, verse 6. says, lift up your eyes to the sky, and then look to the earth beneath. For the sky will vanish like smoke, And earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will not wane. God's promise to you and to me. And so we all have a choice this morning. Every man's choice, every woman's choice is simply this. You can wear out like a garment, or you can wear garments of salvation. Won't you make that decision for Jesus today if you never have? And if you have, and this world's wearing on you, well, let's cry out to Jesus together. Would you bow with me? If you've never given your life to Jesus, as we bow together this morning, I invite you to do it. And I want you to do it right where you stand. So just pray in your heart to the Lord after me. Lord Jesus, My sin is getting old, and I want to be new. Lord, I want to be fresh. I want to be born again. And so I cry out to you this morning. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
I believe that You came to this world to dwell among us. That You died on the cross. And I believe You rose again. And I believe Your promise of salvation. Lord Jesus, come and be my Lord and Savior from this moment on. Make my life new. In Jesus' name. Believers, if you're struggling with the oldness of life and the weariness, would you pray this with me to the Lord? Lord Jesus, would you blow through me like a fresh wind? Would you, Lord, refresh my spirit with your Holy Spirit? Give me a new sense of what is coming today. And in the midst of all the chaos and all that is rotting and dying and old, lift my eyes to seek first your eternal kingdom. Keep my eyes on you, Lord Jesus, until all these things are fulfilled. Fill me, Lord, with the hope of all that is new. In Jesus' name. Amen. And if you prayed either one of those prayers, I invite you to come forward and pray with us some more. If you've given your life to Jesus today, you need to get baptized. That's your next step. But if there's anything we can be praying about together, any need that you have, why don't you come while we sing together?